Good morning. Good to see you this morning. I hope you are all doing well. Several faces I don't recognize this morning as I look out uh, at everyone. Welcome to Trinity Church. Glad that you are able to be with us this morning and worship the true God with us. And I hope that I get an opportunity to meet you before you leave today. I'll be standing over in the hallway uh, to the uh, exit door. Before you leave, please stop by and introduce yourself. And if you're a member at Trinity Church, and I already know, you can stop by as well and say hi to me as well. Okay, I want to see you too. And uh, be good to, to talk with you. We're in Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 16 through 34 today. Acts 17, verse 16 through 34. And it's a timely message this morning. Uh, as Jeremy said, we have just concluded our uh, equipping hour on evangelism, and we're starting today an equipping hour on the gospel. What is the gospel, understanding the gospel? And I've, I've said before, it's, it's, it's odd how often I talk to people who are professing Christians, and yet they are not able to articulate for me the gospel very clearly. Uh, they're not able to articulate uh, what is the gospel, and they feel very hesitant or unqualified or ill-equipped for that. And I, I think that's a sad thing. I think it's sad and alarming when people who say that they are believers in Christ, that they are followers of Christ, but they can't articulate the gospel. And so we want to make sure that we understand what the gospel is, understand biblically uh, what the, the gospel is, and make sure you're equipped to talk to people about the gospel. This is true. True worshipers of God want to see others come to worship God. True worshipers of God want to see others come to worship God. And so we want to be evangelists if we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, if we are truly worshiping God. We want to be uh, evangelizing everywhere we go and speaking the truth about Jesus Christ, speaking the truth of who God is and how to know him through his son Christ and uh, so we want to encourage you in that. But today our text is such a timely message for that because this is exactly what we see Paul doing in the city of Athens. Would you stand me, stand with me, join me in standing for the reading of God's word in Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34. I will read as you follow along there. Starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city, that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what, this, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Paul finds himself in Athens. Remember briefly how he got here. He ministered in a town named Thessalonica, reasoning from the scriptures with the Jewish audience and the God-fearing Gentile audience, how that the Old Testament scriptures actually point to the fact that the Jewish Messiah would die and rise again. This should be what they expect. And that Jesus is the Messiah that they were expecting. The Jewish people in Thessalonica, most of them, the majority of them, they get a mob together. Remember we saw that last week? They get a mob together and they actually attack Paul and his team flees to a town called Berea where they preach the gospel and the Jewish people there examine the scriptures and believe they were much better born, it says, than those in Thessalonica. They hear the gospel and they believe. But the Jewish mob in Thessalonica hears that he's down in Berea preaching the gospel and they travel down there 45 miles to chase him away or to find him and persecute him. And he's chased away to Athens. He's brought to Athens. The brethren at Berea get him away and take him to Athens where he sends word for Timothy and Silas to join him there. We see the spread of the gospel message often takes place through difficulties and unchosen paths. Paths that we would not choose for ourselves. This is how God is spreading his word. This is how God is accomplishing his purpose. God's sovereign attendance of his word. In fact, it is God taking his word forth into the world. And he does so through obedient servants. He does so as we yield ourselves to him and to his purpose to proclaim the gospel to the world. Did you know that God wants to involve you in that? God wants to involve you in his purpose to take the news of his gospel, the gospel of his kingdom being established and mediated in his son king, the work of his son Jesus. Jesus has died for the sins of his people. Jesus has risen from the dead in victory over death and sin. And he is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And he is our Lord. And he wants to involve us in this proclamation, the proclamation of this message to the world. So here we see Paul, an obedient servant in Athens. Now, the name Athens, anyone would recognize. You've heard of that city. You you might not have heard of Thessalonica, maybe. You might have heard of Berea, maybe. If you know the Bible, you've heard of those cities. But Athens, everyone has heard of. Athens, this famous city. It was the intellectual, cultural, philosophical capital of the ancient world. This is where ideas were born. This is where the great intellects of the day gathered. Uh, Architecturally, Athens was stunning. It was where everyone went Uh, who wanted to know something, as we see later on, something new or hear something new. This this might be a nice vacation for Paul. You know, he's had a hard time of it. He's been in Berea, chased off. 
by the mob of angry Jewish people. This might be a nice vacation for Paul. Maybe, maybe time for him to take in some sights. Maybe time for him to enjoy himself, a little rest. But he's earned it. After all, he's been working really hard, right? Taking some lectures. But what we see happen in this text this morning is not a break or a respite for Paul. In fact, this is an opportunity for Paul. Something happens while Paul is in Athens that turns out to give us what what has become a model of Christian apologetics. Now, apologetics, are you familiar with that term, apologetics? Uh, we, We think of apology as when we say we're sorry, but apologetics is a defense Christian apologetics is a defense of the truth. To be an apologist, a defender, an advocate for the truth. And this text here is a model. Paul gives us a model for defending the Christian truth. We've seen how the gospel goes to Jewish audiences. He uses the scripture because that's what the Jewish people would have held to. He uses the Old Testament scripture to engage them. In this chapter, this, the gospel goes to idol worshipers, those who do not have the scriptures. And so we see how Paul defends the truth, advocates for the truth, and gives the gospel starting in a different place. We see here in Acts chapter 17, Paul gives us really, I think, a model for our current day evangelism. You want to be an evangelist, you should be. All of us should desire to be an evangelist, the gospel. Acts 17 gives us a model for what that looks like in our lives. We we talk often about being equipped. Well, Acts 17 equips us. Equips us in this desire to be an evangelist, in this desire to proclaim the truth. The first point I want to give you this morning is that in our evangelism, and this is, this is good for us because it, it, it's equipping for us, in our evangelism and in, in speaking the truth to others, we need to under, understand that we will have conflict. We should expect conflict. That's the first point. We should expect conflict. As true worshipers of God, we should expect to not be well favored. And we should expect to be grieved in a world that does not worship our God. This is what you see with Paul. You see it there in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He was provoked. This word we've seen already, it's similar to the word uh, when Paul and Barnabas had their sharp disagreement back in chapter 15. Paul was angered by what he saw. Paul was grieved by what he saw. Paul has a profound sense of provocation at the gross idolatry around him. You see, while he's in Athens, he he can't rest, he can't take a break, he can't just be relieved that he's no longer being chased by a mob and take it easy for a while. No, as he looks around him, he sees gross idolatry surrounding him everywhere and he is provoked by that. He is angered by that. He is grieved by that. I, I wrote this down in my notes. Where, where is this in our lives? Where is this in our lives? What, what is it that provokes us? What are you grieved about in our culture? And why? If we sat down, we could talk about all the things that grieve us about our culture, Right? We could talk about all the things that grieve us and make us sad or that anger us. But, but why are those the things that grieve us? Why are those the things that anger us? 
For Paul, it was the false worship that surrounded him, that angered him. It was the fact that people did not worship God as God. And this is what should grieve us as well when we see the sin of our culture. We shouldn't be angered sinfully. We should be provoked with righteous indignation. Do you know what righteous indignation is? Righteous indignation. Did you know it's possible to be righteously indignant? Do you know it's possible to be righteously angry? Well, how do I know if I'm righteously angry? When I am angered at that which angers God, when I am angered by the fact that God is not glorified as God. If we're truthful, most of the time what angers us is not God's glory being diminished but something in our society and our culture that we don't like or we don't want, the fact that we don't have control, maybe they're changing things that we hold dear. We get angered by things, sinfully angered, and yet our anger should be provoked by God's glory not being acknowledged. We are surrounded by false worship everywhere we go, Our culture preaches at us everywhere we go. People say all the time, I don't like to be preached at. And yet, we're preached at every day in our culture. At our our, our workplace, we're preached at. In our homes, we declare and proclaim a message. In our schools, there's a message preached there. And this is why we should expect conflict. This is why we should expect conflict. Because the message that is preached in our culture, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes, the message that is preached comes into conflict with the message of Christianity. Christianity should collide with our culture. Culture, man-made culture, and the true worship of God are not friends. I want to say that again, and I want you to hear what I'm saying. The true worship of God and the truth of Christianity and man-made culture are not on friendly terms. We're not on the same team. We're not for each other. The message that you hear proclaimed here at Trinity Church, the message you hear proclaimed every week is not on friendly terms with the messages preached everywhere you go in your culture. So the message this morning is simply for us to be courageous. Don't capitulate. Don't give in. Don't resign. Don't accommodate. Don't make friends for friendship's sake with the culture. Now, in Athens, Paul comes across two groups of philosophers. While he's, and I I should stop and say this, he's provoked as he sees the city full of idols. And so what does he do about it? What does he do about it? Well, he preaches the gospel. Verse 17. He reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Paul preaches the gospel. That's what he does about it. And that's what you and I can do about it as well. That's the only thing we can do is to proclaim the truth. And as he's proclaiming the gospel there, I like how it says that, He proclaims the gospel in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Whoever's there, whoever happens to be there, he wants to tell them the truth. And while he's proclaiming the gospel in the marketplace, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also begin conversing with him. We see these two groups of philosophers conversing with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Another said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, I am, I am not a student of philosophy, really. I uh, looked up Epicurean and Stoic philosophy, and, and all the things that I've read this past week point to the same ideas. I'm going to read just a brief excerpt on these two philosophies. The philosophy of Epicurus was a complete and interdependent system involving a view of the goal of human life. The goal of human life was happiness for the Epicurean, resulting from absence of physical pain and mental disturbance. In other words, the goal of the Epicurean was to be happy, to avoid pain, to avoid suffering, to avoid anything that wasn't ideal, and to pursue happiness, to pursue pleasure. The Epicurean had an empiricist theory of knowledge. They believed that what you feel, your perceptions, these are infallible. They described nature only by its material realities, naturalistic, something akin to naturalistic evolution from the formation of the world to the emergence of human societies. They dispensed with any kind of idea of transcendent involvement with the world. They did not believe in any kind of survival after death, no afterlife. They regarded the unacknowledged fear of death and punishment as the primary cause of anxiety among human beings, and anxiety in turn as a source of extreme and irrational desires. So they eliminated fears regarding the afterlife. The Epicurean believed the gods were distant, did not care, uninvolved, and that events in our lives happened randomly. No order, no purpose. And therefore, your only goal in life was to pursue what pleased you, what gave you happiness. And I, I was struck by this as I read through all, all these different descriptions how similar this is to how people think today. The Epicurean approach to life. The Stoic is quite different than the Epicurean. The Stoic did have a belief in God as the active principle in all things. Believed God was characterized as eternal reason or intelligent designer by fire or by breath, structures matters in accordance with its plan. The Stoic God is thus imminent throughout the cosmos, directs its development down to the smallest detail. The entire cosmos is a living thing, and God stands to be the cosmos as an animal's life force stands to the animal's body, enlivening, moving, directing it by its presence throughout. So it's like... It's like no joke, it's like the force. Star Wars, it's like the force. They had this belief in God as he was the force that lived and moved and went through everything that kept everything going. But because this is their belief about God, they, they believe that fate was unavoidable. Everything was determined. The end, or the goal... Where the Epicurean's goal was to be happy, the Stoic's goal was to be at one with nature. What's going to happen is going to happen. No point in getting bothered or passionate about it or emotional about it. Just accept it. And this was the goal, to accept life and what it was. No passions, no emotions. This is why we call people who are Stoic, un, you know, unemotional or people that are unemotional stoic, they believed in reason above all else. So these two philosophies interact with Paul here in the marketplace. The Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. Neither one of them have a belief in a bodily afterlife. In fact, along with all Greek philosophy, the body or matter is to be avoided. It's to be gotten out of. Matter is bad. And 
the soul or the spirit, at the very least, if there was a belief in the afterlife, the spirit's goal is to get released from the body. So as they hear Paul talk, here they have two responses. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? What does this babbler wish to say? The word babbler here is this idea of someone who gathers scraps of cloth and patches them together. Someone who is ripping off. He's, a, he, he's ripping off other ideas and patching them together. He's a third-rate intellect is really what they're saying. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Have you ever sat with somebody who wants to pretend that they know what they're talking about? I think of people who want to relate to those who know something about football or something about cars or something about, you know, whatever it is, and they don't know what they're talking about, and they try to put things together. And anybody that knows anything about football or cars or whatever it is, they know this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, that's what they said about Paul. He's a babbler. He's piecing things together and doesn't know what he's talking about. Some said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They, they actually heard the message of Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus being the male God and resurrection being the female God. They thought that, that Paul was talking about two new deities to be added there to the worship of Athens. Jesus and the resurrection. Anastasis. Anastasia. We have an Anastasia in the house. So they're confused by what Paul is saying. Did, did you know that the gospel message is strange to people who hear it? The message of the gospel that we have been given to proclaim does not make sense to the people of our world. You should expect conflict. You should expect to be opposed. You should expect to be grieved. You should expect for people to not understand. You should expect conflict. But then we see the second point of our message this morning. And Paul does something remarkable. Look at verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So th- here's what Paul does. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Here's what Paul does. Paul identifies the common ground. He identifies the common ground. So first, we ought to expect conflict in our evangelism. Second, we ought to look for, identify common ground. While man-made culture and true worship of God are not friends, there is much to be celebrated in culture, in our world. There's much to be celebrated in what we see around us. So although true worship of God and culture are not friends, there is much to be celebrated in man-made culture. There is much to be celebrated in art and in science In education, there's much to be celebrated in all that we see around us. And what Paul does is, is so insightful. What he does is he takes something that they have erected, an altar, to an unknown God. In their desire, in their in their commitment to polytheism, 
they knew that they quite possibly had not found and discovered all the gods. They had erected an altar to the unknown God just to hit all their bases, check all the boxes. He sees that and he starts his conversation with them by saying, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I found an altar that you had erected to an unknown God. You you want to make sure you're worshiping all the gods. You want to make sure that you're doing that and that's good. But in this unknown God, in this altar to the unknown God, right? You are worshiping in ignorance. Paul actually uses their religion to open up the conversation with them concerning the truth of who God is. This is, this is one of the misunderstandings that we have a lot of times when we think about the culture and the people who live in our culture. People can and do good things. People can do good things. There are many things that we can be thankful for and celebrate in what people do and what people create. It's these places, I think, in, in, in our perceptions and in our awarenesses, it's these things that we can use as access points to open up the conversation about the gospel. What can you appreciate about your coworkers? What can you appreciate about those people that you interact with? What do you have in common with them? Man does a lot of good things. And in the good that they do, what they're signaling is this basic understanding of God. Did you know that? I think of pieces of art that are worth celebrating. I think of pieces of music. Have you ever listened to a, a piece of music? I, I am, I'm, not very, um, I'm not very cultured. I'm not extremely uh, layered in my, my musical taste, but I love Aaron Copeland. Have you ever listened to Aaron Copeland, the, the composer Aaron Copeland? I love his music. That, he, he is not, as far as I'm aware, he is not a believer in God. But I can, I can appreciate what he writes and appreciate. And when I hear that music, my response is, how can you, how can you deny God? That is beautiful. God is glorified through that. These things that we can appreciate, these are our access points to speak of the truth of God to people. We, we need, as, as Christians, we need to understand what two passages in Scripture teach. Two passages I want to give you very quickly. Psalm 19 and Romans 1. Psalm 19 and Romans 1. Do you know those passages? Psalm 19 and Romans 1. These two passages teach us that every man and woman on the face of the earth knows that there is a God. These two passages teach us that every person on the face of the earth knows that there is a God. Did you know that? Every person that you interact with knows that there is a God. Why? Because the sun travels through the heavens every day and they can see it. Romans tells us that what can be known about God is clear to them because they perceive it in all that he has made. Creation proclaims the truth and the glory of God. Every person that you interact with knows that there's a God and knows that their worship and thanksgiving is due Him. Every person knows that. That there's a God and that their worship and thanksgiving is due Him. Every person 
rejects this knowledge, suppresses it. And because of their rejection of the truth of who God is, are deserving of judgment. Every person on the face of the earth is deserving of judgment because of the fact that they've rejected the God that they know is there. So we have common ground with every person we talk to. All mankind, all of mankind, we're the same. All of us are looking for meaning. All of us are looking for the point to life. The Epicureans and the Stoics, what do we have in common with them? They're both trying to explain life. They're trying to explain the events of life. They're trying to explain what happens and why and what the goal of life should be. And that's what everybody's doing. You're sitting here today and you, you want to know what the point of life is. You want to know what will make you happy. You want to know what you should be shooting for or aiming at. That's what all of us want. All of us want security. All of us want significance. All of us. We want our life to matter. We want happiness on some level. We want love and satisfaction. That's what we want. And the person that you're working with or the person that you come in contact with at your school, they want the same things. We all want the same things because we're made by the same God. We all share Him in common. That's why all of us like to say about music, oh, that was beautiful. Why would we say that? Because there's a God. Did you know just that simple connection can get you into a gospel conversation? Are you looking for that opportunity to identify the common ground with those that you are relating to? I thought this is helpful for us just to think about the people that we come in contact with on a daily basis. Most of the people, now there was a time, okay, there was a time in America not too long ago where the Christian idea and ideology overlapped with the culture, right? There was a time not too long ago where there was a lot of overlap that is becoming increasingly not the case and it's to be expected right that shouldn't that shouldn't surprise you and our goal isn't just to get america back to being a christian nation no jesus will accomplish that our job is to proclaim jesus the the people that we deal with on a daily basis here in our american culture do have some understanding of god they don't know the scriptures very well, if at all, but they do have some understanding of God often. And in fact, a lot of the people, and I hear this all the time, a lot of the people you deal with have some kind of Christian-ish understanding of God. The people in your life may even be friendly towards some idea that there is a God out there who made everything in 2005, a sociologist named Christian Smith wrote a book where he coined the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. You've probably heard that phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism. I find this to be what most people I run into have as far as a belief in God. Here's what this belief in God is, a moralistic. In other words, God wants us to do good things. God wants us to be nice. God wants us to be fair. God wants us to do good things. God wants us to live morally. This belief in God is that the central goal of life is to be happy. God wants us to be happy. God wants us to enjoy our lives. 
Most of the Christian music you listen to on the radio will have that as its goal. God wants us to be happy, so he's going to move that mountain out of your way. He's going to take care of that obstacle, make sure that you are not impeded anymore. So God, he's out there, and he wants us to be nice and fair and good, and he wants us to be happy, but he's not super involved in our lives unless we're at crisis. Unless we're in crisis, something is keeping us from being happy, then we'll, we'll get God involved. I need to pass that math test. I'll ask God to help me. I, I need God to remove that cancer. Oh, you better believe I'm going to call on God to do that. Is it that interesting? Whenever there's a national crisis or there's some kind of personal crisis, people will flock back to the church and say, Now, God, please help us. We didn't have anything to do with you before, but now, please help us. This moralistic, therapeutic deism also believes that good people, sincere people, well-meaning, good, sincere people make it to heaven in the end. And that, that is ultimately, again, and I've used that illustration over and over and over again, how many funerals have I gone to where that, that person is in heaven, in a better place, on what grounds? I always want to say, what grounds do you say that? Oh, because he was a good person. Sincere, well-meaning. Oh, he had his flaws like everybody else, but hey, he was a good guy. Give you the shirt off his back. See, this is, this is what so many of the people in our culture believe about God. This moralistic, therapeutic deism. Do you see the opportunity in that to speak the truth? You see, instead of just shaking our heads, <laughs> I, I, just, I just said this a minute ago, everybody around us wants significance and happiness and meaning and purpose. Everyone around us wants this, and so many people around us have defined it the wrong way, right? Moralistic therapeutic deism is an example of that. Do we just shake our heads at that and go, yeah, these people, <laughs> these people don't know what they're talking about. Or do we see the opportunity in that? Do we see the opportunity to actually speak into their lives? To take that common ground and to turn it to the truth? We should expect conflict. If we're going to be effective evangelists, we should be looking for and identifying the common ground. And there is much common ground. But the goal isn't just to build a bridge, right? It's to get over the bridge. It's not just to build a bridge, but it's to bring the truth. And that, that brings me to the last point. We should be willing to confront with the truth. We should be willing to confront with the truth. This is the, the goal of identifying common ground, not just to be friends, but to move to the truth. And that's exactly what Paul does. Paul takes this altar to the unknown God. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he begins there to give them the truth about who God is. He begins with the identity of God. And the identity of God then gives the identity of man. Did you know that's how it works? If you want to know who you are, you've got to start with understanding who God is. He starts with the identity of God, and then he gives the identity of man in the place of man. And then he calls out the false worship of man. And then he points to the judgment of man. Let's read through it. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything 
sense, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he starts off with this truth of who God is. God is the one who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. See, the fact that he has made everything makes him the sovereign of everything. Because he has made all, he is ruler of all. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And because he's the one who has made everything, because he's the one that has given life and breath and everything, he cannot be worshipped in a temple made by human hands. This point was made by Stephen to the Jews in Acts chapter 7. Remember, he says, do you think that you could contain God in this temple made by your hands? No, God is much bigger than your religion. See, I said a minute ago that religion was Paul's entrance into speaking the gospel. But I want you to know that atheism is not the sin of man. Religion is the sin of man. Atheism is not the sin of man. Religion is. Because we have created and built worship of things that are not God and have called it God. This is what the sin of mankind is. This is the essence of our sin. Removing God from his rightful place and putting ourselves in his place. It's false worship. He says, the God who made everything does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This truth of who God is, that he is the one who has given life to all, this has many implications to it for your life and for my life. Because God is the one who's made all, all things, because he's the sovereign of all things, What does that mean about you and me? That means we are not the sovereign over anything. We are not the ruler of of anything. We are not the boss of our lives. Can Can I say that again? You, sir, you, ma'am, are not the boss of your life. You are not in charge. And I am not in charge of my life. God is. And because he's the one who gave me everything, everything belongs to him. And everything ought to be used for worship of him. Everything is his. Do not think that he can be contained in temples or in your religion. Don't, be, don't, don't think that he's pleased with your little sacrifices. He goes on to talk about mankind. Verse 26 And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He says that this God, the God who made all things, the God who cannot be worshipped in temples or with sacrifices, the God who gave life and everything, breath, this God, he made all people from one man. He made all people, every nation came and all mankind came to live on the face of the earth from one man. And it's he who has determined the periods of history. God is the God of history. The God of the Bible is the God of history. He is the one who has chosen and allotted the periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He has decided when nations rise and when nations fall. He has decided how long they last. And while they exist, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him 
and find him. And this is not likely, the, the use of the Greek there makes it very unlikely that they will find him. It's, it's the picture of people groping in the darkness, people grasping in the darkness, not knowing where they're going, stumbling and tripping and falling, trying to find him, but not able to find him. He is the one who has determined all of this. Yet, going on in verse 27, yet he is actually not far from each of us. So this is, this is really talking both to the Epicureans and the Stoics. He is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. This is one of their own poets, Epimenides, the third century. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, another one of their poets. So he takes two, two pieces of their poetry and he weaves it in. And he says, see, see, you have this truth here. In him we live and move and have our being. We are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring is mankind. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We, we shouldn't think that we, we are able to manipulate God or force God or control God. How ignorant is that idea that we can make idols and call them God and say that he is controlled by us as man. We are his offspring. Now look at verse 30. So we have the truth about God, who God is. We have the truth about man. We are subject to him. Verse 30, he points to judgment. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul brings his speech to a conclusion. He talks about the truth of who God is. He gives the implications of what that means for us as mankind. And then he says that God is going to call account for the false worship of mankind. God now commands all people everywhere to repent. This is, not a, this, is not a, uh, this is not an easy thing to do, is it? But this is what evangelism is. This is what it means to proclaim the gospel. It's, it's the truth about who God is. It's the truth about who we are in light of who God is. And our sin, the sin of false worship. And the judgment that is coming as a result of that false worship. And calls every man everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By whom? By a man that he has appointed. And who is that man that he has appointed to judge the world? Jesus. Jesus Christ. I find it interesting here in his speech, he doesn't actually use the name Jesus. He's been talking about Jesus and the resurrection in the marketplace, but here in his speech, he doesn't actually use the name Jesus. He just points to the judgment that's coming. He points to the judgment that's coming and the fact that God has appointed a man and he has given us assurance as to who this man is by raising him from the dead. Did you know the resurrection of Jesus is what proves that he is the judge of all mankind? Because God has raised him from the dead, this proves that he alone is the one who holds the right to judge every man. Jesus is your judge. How, how do you like to think of Jesus? This is, again, one of those points of entrance. We, we have a lot of people in our lives who have some kind of understanding of Jesus, but I, I guarantee you, most of them don't ever think of Jesus as their judge. Whose face is it that we will see in that judgment day? It is the face of Jesus. His face will be the last one that many see as they go to hell.
That's who Jesus is. That's the Jesus we proclaim. You know what's interesting also is that Paul doesn't talk about all the love God has for everybody here. In fact, any of the places of proclamation and acts, you don't really see the love of God being the highlight, do you? It's the truth of who God is. It's the truth of who man is. It's the truth of our, of our sin and the condemnation that our sin brings. It's the worship that belongs to God. It's the call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and the Christ. Listened this last week to a podcast on the need to preach of hell. And I was convicted in my spirit. We, I think, are guilty of not talking about hell quite enough. The people that you work with, the people that you go to school with, the people that you associate with, even in your home, are headed to a place called hell. And they will be sent there justly. It is right for them to be sent to hell. And it is awful. And it is not something that we take any, any delight in. In fact, we should be terrified by that reality. And we should proclaim the gospel knowing that those who we sit with are headed to hell. They will be judged by the Lord Jesus and their judgment will be final. So let's, let's not lighten the truth. Let's not cut corners with the truth. Let's not go along to get along. Let's expect conflict. Identify common ground with those that we're trying to bring to the truth and be willing to confront with the truth when we get that opportunity. One writer wrote, connecting with the hearers, the the Christian apologist, the Christian evangelist, his goal is in connecting with the hearers, correcting their misconceptions, conversing with the ideological or theological framework that they have, Convicting them of their compromises with their conscience in light of their own intellectual commitment. And confronting them with their need of repentance and faith. This is what we're called to do. This is our job. This is our mission. We exist here in the Spokane Valley because we want to see false worship put to an end here we want to see people turn from their false worship turn from their false ideas turn from their false theologies and turn to the truth submit to Jesus believe upon him that's why we're here and that's what we want to do Father we pray that you would this morning Encourage us and give us a a renewed hope for this message. As we see here in Acts 17, some believed, many mocked, many said they would listen again to this matter, and some believed. I pray that you would burden us with the false worship that we see all around us, that we would not take it lightly, that we would not sleep, that we would be provoked. Keep us from sinful anger or selfishly motivated anger. I pray that we'd be motivated by a concern for you and concern for your glory. Give us wisdom. Give us insight in how to connect with people. To find what is true in what they're believing or thinking. To find the common ground. The desire to be a good parent. Or the desire to be a good employee. Or 
their desire for beauty, whatever it may be, that really points to you, that the fact that they have a maker and that you are their maker. Give us wisdom on how to know when to speak. And I pray that you would give us boldness to confront with the truth, a willingness to confront with the truth of who you are, God, of who they are and who Jesus is. And I pray that you would make each one of us evangelists, make each one of us proclaimers of that truth, and that we would truly be bold and willing to speak up. For your glory, we pray in your name. Amen.